As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello, my name is Tim Wyatt and you're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast in which I speak with my dad, the doctor, professor of ethics and writer John Wyatt, about how Christians can think more deeply on issues in science, medicine, technology and faith. Last week marked 100 years since the late John Stott was born and there has been a flurry of events to mark the centenary of this highly influential vicar, Bible teacher and evangelical leader. He also had a huge impact on my dad's own life and career. And in this episode, we wanted to talk about not just the legacy of Stott's many decades of ministry, but whether his vision for how Christians can engage well in the public square is still relevant and meaningful today, more than 60 years after he began making the case. Has society long since moved on, or are there still things to learn and challenges to heed from Stott? Well, hello, John. Uh, Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, Today, we wanted to spend uh, this episode talking about uh, John Stott. Um, Some of our listeners might have come across the fact that last week it was the 100th anniversary of his birth, and there was a a plethora of uh, special services, discussions, talks, uh, all over the internet and around the world talking about this uh, church leader who died about 10 years ago. Um, what what's all the fuss about? Why why are people make such a big deal about of him? Who was he, and what is your place in all of this, Dad? Yeah, so John Stott is probably one of the most significant uh, Christian leaders of the twentieth century. Um, of course, you know, church history is is a, is a retrospective discipline, but uh, many people would put him in uh, a league of the, one or two outstanding Christian leaders of the twentieth century. And uh, he had an enormous impact globally. Uh, He had a global ministry, although he spent most of his time working in central London as a rector at All Souls Church. Um, And I happened by uh, sheer coincidence or the providence of God to turn up at All Souls as a first year medical student in 1972. And... uh, I have to say the reason I went to All Souls was not because of the wonderful biblical preaching, but because they had an orchestra and I, I played the trumpet. And uh, and uh, this was a chance for me to play in a, in a church orchestra. Um, and John Stott was a sort of slightly distant and forbidding, but very impressive picture uh, person in the pulpit. And uh, from you very rapidly realised that his sermons were extraordinarily immaculately prepared and 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 very effective very dense both both theologically intellectually but also spiritually um but then a number of years later probably three or four years later when i'd be a fourth year medical student he um i get a message from the rectory would you like to come and have a cup of coffee and uh, it it was a bit like being asked to see the headmaster in his study and um i went with great trepidation and much to my uh, surprise and delight um he he solemnly welcomed me into his tiny bachelor pad he, i can still remember the instant he sort of uh gave me a, a cup of instant coffee and a digestive biscuit <laughs> and uh and then we were alone together and and uh and he was interested in me and uh how can i pray for you and, and what's it like being a medical student and uh 
what are you reading at the moment? And, and, and he was intentionally starting up a friendship, which in fact was to last nearly 40 years. And uh, we walked together over the years, um, uh, sharing triumphs and tragedies. And, and he opened his heart to me. I opened my heart to him. And he had an enormous transformative effect on my life. Um, and in many ways, you know, here we are doing a podcast called Matters of Life and Death. Why on earth would we be doing that? And the answer is it's because of Stott and, and what Stott modelled for me, what is his idea of engaging in the modern world, of double listening. All, all these ideas are ideas that came from him. Hmm. And you've been quite involved um, in some of the commemorations and, and the reflections. You've, you've preached a sermon at All Souls uh, which explored uh, Stott's ideas around releasing lay people for ministry. Um, you've did an interview with the kind of influential Christian blogger and podcaster Glenn Scrivener about about Stott and your friendship. And you also um, did a talk at the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, which Stott himself actually founded, um, and, a, and a discussion. And, and we're going to put links to all of those if you people want to dig in deep to the Stott centenary and find out more about the man he was, uh, his books, his writings, his legacy. Um, we'll put links to all of those on the website and in the podcast notes, so you can so you can explore further. Um, but we wanted to to today skim over some of the key thinkings and the key th- lessons that you've drawn, reflecting back on his life, but also ask primarily what is the relevance of Stott and Stottian thinking, if that is a thing, uh, today here in 2021 for people maybe like me, born after his kind of public ministry was 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 winding down. Yes, and um, it it I have been I have to say quite encouraged about the amount of interest there has been in Stott um, uh, despite the fact it's 100 years <clears throat> since he was born and uh, 10 years since he died And um, but I think in some ways uh, one could argue that, that Stott's influence particularly in the UK has actually been much less than one might imagine I mean uh, people uh, pay respect to the name he's 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 but the older generation tend to regard that name with great respect. But but if I ask the question, how much are the are the, the things that he was utterly passionate about? How much are they really, really re- being reflected here and now in the 20th century? I actually think that in many ways the evangelical church has gone backwards in the UK, and that perhaps the greatest impact of Stott paradoxically has been elsewhere, particularly in low-resource countries, uh, in Africa, in Latin America and in Asia, uh, and much less in the UK. Hmm. And so when you look back on on some of the recurring themes that you see in Stott, both of the, the man you knew and in the preacher and, and, and writer, what are, what are, I think you have about three headings you wanted to quickly explain that you think have something to say for us here, here today. Yes, he, he combined both an, an utter commitment to the historic biblical reformed faith and uh and was utterly steeped in that tradition uh, but he combined that with a a driving passion to understand the modern world and to relate the historic christian faith to the modern world with all the complexities and confusions and challenges and it, it was that combination and and particularly the radical side of his of his nature. Uh, someone described him as a conservative radical, and, and I think it's quite a, a good description. He was he was conservative about the the historic Orthodox Christian faith, but he was radical about everything else. He was prepared to upset the apple cart, uh, toss over tradition, and and was involved in some very controversial um, aspects of truth. And I have to say, as a young man, it was that aspect that drew me to him you know if he would if he'd just simply been a preacher who was faithful to the bible and who explained the gospel in very clear terms then frankly you know I'd heard many preachers like that and he wouldn't have had uh, the impact he did on my on my life but the the impact came from his his desire to really understand the modern world to do it genuinely not to play at it but but uh, to spend time, energy, engaging, um, and and throughout all came this emphasis on listening. So, if there's one word that um, 
in, in, in perhaps summarise the stop more than any others, apart from focus on Christ, and it would be listening and, and his desire both to listen to God, to listen to other people, including Christians in low-resource settings, in, in so-called majority world settings, and to and to listen to the modern world and this i and and he, he didn't just talk about it he did it and he did it meticulously and carefully and interestingly this listening uh, attitude comes from his theology it's because he believes that other people have things that are worth saying so he 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 genuinely believed in the doctrine of the church that that the spirit gives everybody within the christian community special gifts and therefore he's he's prepared to listen even to quite lowly christians and to christians from all kinds of different backgrounds across the world but he also believes in in what the reformers call the the doctrine of common grace that that god gives his gift of knowledge and insight not just to believers but actually um to unbelievers to people who come from uh, utterly different uh, faith traditions or from atheism or whatever and therefore he was he was prepared to enter in, into dialogue he, he he listens and was that controversial was that unusual was that out of step with evangelical thinking at the time it certainly was and it and it although people respected him as a person there were many people who felt that he was completely misguided in fact it's interesting that he he talked about the fact that he he had a sort of change of heart in in his in his first uh, say 10 15 years of his ministry from the early 50s through to the mid 60s he in many ways followed a very traditional understanding of evangelism and of church and of teaching bible teaching and so on um but starting in the 60s and on into the 70s he, he had a really sort of major change when he 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 came to understand that engaging in the modern world and and demonstrating the relevance of Christianity to uh, everyday issues was important. And there were many people in the church who thought that he had simply lost. You know, he was going liberal. He was he was losing his focus on on the quote simple gospel. They thought that he had uh, uh, been. Uh, in in many ways lost the heart and so but he was quite unapologetic he was although in a very gentle and peacemaking way he was nonetheless very firm in in arguing that actually this was the orthodox historic christian church it, it was the the narrowness and to use a word the pietism of traditional evangelicalism the withdrawal from the world that that actually was was misguided. That was to to deviate. Historic Christianity had never been pietistic. Had never withdrawn into a holy huddle. It had always wished to engage in the world. And that's where you get that famous quote that people may have heard about about you know preaching with a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other, and trying to marry the eternal, unchanging gospel truth, but with in, to an incredibly close attention to what was actually happening in people's lives at that point in the 1960s in London, in England. That's right. And I can remember the impact it had on me just sitting in the back row there at All Souls Church and hearing him, he preached a series of sermons on, quotes contemporary issues, you know, and this is the 1970s, and it was things like labour relations and uh, unemployment, uh, nuclear disarmament, uh, divorce law reform, and those kind of issues and he was taking the stuff that was in the newspapers of that week and then carefully and patiently and persuasively showing how Christian truth could actually engage and and I've never forgotten the effect it had on me it was absolutely electrifying and and um, in, as, ever since I've tried to do however inadequately and however much you know I'm not in the same league as John Stott but that's actually been one of the guiding passions for my life is to try to show how orthodox Christian truth is relevant to the real issues which we face today. And the other theme you, you pulled out is this idea of salt and light as Christians in the secular world, those not in ministry, how, how he taught 
you and others in your position as you know doctors lawyers journalists uh, how they were to live in, in the secular world yeah he, you know he really believed in quotes lay people um in fact that even that uh, designation you know that's what how the church refers to lay people and a lay person is someone who is so weird is they're not even ordained I mean you know there, <laughs> there are there are the serious people who are ordained and then there's the kind of the other ranks and, and yeah they, they're, they're worthy and they, they're important and they they do good works but they're not the heart of where the church is that you know and Stott um, genuinely believed <laughs> biblically that um that actually it was ordinary people that who were the doing the work of ministry and um he he was sometimes quite pedantic about this because when some bright young thing came up to him said that they're thinking that god is calling them into the ministry and he would raise his eyebrows and he would say something like well, that's very interesting. Uh, is this? Are you talking about the agricultural ministry, maybe, or, or the educational <laughs> ministry, or, or perhaps the scientific? Oh, I see. You're talking about the pastoral ministry. Well, why don't you say so? In other words, he refused <laughs> to think that the ministry, the only way mm. you serve, was by being ordained. And 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 he would, his influence on me was to push me back from any idea of of going into and becoming a, a clergyman and, uh, and and to see the value of of serving Christ as a as a medic as he and he had so much influence on other um people in so he genuinely believed that this is where the real work of ministry happens the work of ministry happen, doesn't happen within the church it happens mm. in the world where Christians are being salt and light and I suppose if one steps back and looks at the UK today, it's not hard to believe that the people who make the greatest influence for the kingdom are not the tiny cadre of priests and ministers and vicars, but it's the ordinary everyday Christians working in secular workplaces, in the schools, in the NHS, in businesses, in local authorities who are, you know, if they are following that call to be salt and light are actually having, making the biggest dent for the kingdom. Well, I, I think that's right. And that, of course, that's not to denigrate the, the enormous value of Bible teachers and preachers and evangelists and so on. But the real work of ministry, I do believe, and, and Stott believed, happens out there in the world. But he would push it further and say, you know, when, when the slab of meat is decaying and putrefying, who do you blame? Do you blame the meat? No, you blame the salt. The salt has failed in its role of preservation and so if we look at society and we see negative things going on and we see decay and um, putrefaction taking place morally then the question is who is responsible and Stott would say we have failed in our in our role as salt and light and and, and I think he is right and and uh, and yet I think I have been, you know, in the 40 and 50 years experience since I was a student, I've had the privilege of, of of penetrating into many different strands of British society. And I've been amazed and encouraged by discovering that actually wherever you go, you find Christian believers in every single part of British society. There are Christian believers quietly working away, acting as salt and light. And, and therefore, I have absolutely no doubt that uh, politics, the civil service, the NHS, the schools, social work, you name it, it would be significantly worse if it wasn't for the preservative action of, of Christian believers. And what about the light then? What does it mean to be light as, as quote-unquote lay Christian disciples? Well, I think light is penetrates into dark places it it illuminates things that people want to keep keep quiet and uh, and it, we're 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 to point to the truth and that that's to, to to point to the truth about Christ but it's also to point out evil and corruption uh, and and to put our heads above the parapet and and that's often a very uncomfortable and and, and painful position and yet you know that was what 
Jesus said, you know, you're you're supposed to be this tiny little village on the top of a hill. I, I remember years ago traveling in southern Italy um, and you saw exactly the, what Jesus, the analogy, you know, this very mountainous terrain and there on the top of of a of a quite significant hill would be a little village with the lights on and and, and you could see you know it was only a little village but it certainly made a difference you could see it for a very long way around and i suppose uh, linking back to what we talked about at the beginning about um kind of connecting the church to the everyday world it also means that christians have a responsibility to seek to to shed to shed light on on those issues so it's no good just for the church to be thinking about divorce reform or international labor relations internally but also christian need to get out there and start making the christian case whatever the christian position is on divorce reform or labor relations or nuclear disarmament to others and and seek to to uh to share the light that that they have had shed in that sense that's absolutely right and that really leads on to this this third emphasis of which um john Stott often spoke about which was to use a theological term, incarnational ministry, that uh, the the ministry, the service of Christian people has to be incarnated. It has to be lived out physically. And he, he drew attention to the, the alternative Great Commission. I mean, when people talk about the Great Commission to mission, they naturally turn to the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. And Stott, of course, uh, preached and, and on that Great Commission and, and, and supported it, but he also referred to the other Great Commission, which is in John's Gospel. After the resurrection, Jesus meets his disciples and he says, as the Father has sent me into the world, so I am sending you. And he said, that is is just as much a great commission as the Matthew 28 commission. But here we are being sent to be Jesus in our different places. And I can remember what an impact that had on me as a young medical student, because, you know, I was being asked to consider, suppose that instead of God's breaking into the world in the person of a carpenter in obscure part of Palestine in God's sovereignty he'd chosen to break into the world in the person of a junior doctor working in central London how would that junior doctor have behaved how would he have treated his patients what would he have said how would he have uh, fulfilled that role and um, to really engage with that question and 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 to ask the question of you know Jesus is sending me, sent to care, sent to serve, sent to demonstrate love and compassion and the reality of, of God's presence. What what does that mean in practice? I, th- I think that emphasis on incarnational mission is incredibly central to the New Testament. And as Stott often pointed out and has been a great inspiration to me, if you look at the early church and you see the way those Christians behaved, what is extraordinary is is the way they just put it into practice. They uh, reached out to leprosy victims and to poor people and they rescued abandoned babies from the rubbish heaps and they went into the prisons and, and cared for prisoners and they gossiped the gospel down the trade routes and they just lived their lives and the church grows explosively um, from people carrying out this incarnational mission. So we've kind of skimmed over very briefly and as I said before there's much more detail on some of this on some of the other resources and sermons and talks that we put on the website of those three kind of headings that you've pulled out from from your experience of start his life his ministry of kind of listening and dialogue being salt and light and incarnational mission um I guess what I wanted to ask is you know it's now been 60 years since some of these ideas were sketched out in sermons at all souls and books um the world has changed uh some of it feels 
kind of quaintly old-fashioned this idea of you know meeting in the public square and and having a meeting of minds and sharing our, our worldviews and, and finding common ground is any of this still relevant for today do you think do you think any of this has something to teach us as evangelicals in 2021 those of us who you know lived in the time after Stott well it is true that some of it some of Stott's teaching can seem um, slightly old-fashioned and even in some way naive I mean I remember very vividly him saying look we we're a tiny minority in in the UK we have no right to impose our views on other people which is what often people complain but in a democratic society we do have the right to persuade to as he used to say to marshal arguments to 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 find ways and arguments to persuade people that the way of Christ and the way of Christian ethics is the best way for our society, for the common good. And I remember at the time thinking, gosh, this is this is wonderful, you know, and maybe what's going to happen is we're going to have a great outpouring of, of Christians in the public square and they're going to be able to persuade that, that Christian thinking is the best way forward for our society. Um, and now... You know, having tried to do my bit of that, and and being many other people trying to do the same thing, you know, we I look back over forty years, thirty, forty years, and I think actually it's turned out to be much harder than I thought, than many of us thought, and that um, <clears throat> we've discovered that actually trying to persuade people in the public square and and using arguments and evidence and so on is is very much, seems to be very much less effective than than we imagined it would be, uh, and and has Stott um, persuaded us that it that it would be. Um, does that mean that the whole enterprise is a waste of time? No, I don't think it is, and I, I'm still involved in, for instance, you know, personally, I'm very involved in national debates about abortion and, and euthanasia. There's likely to be a big national debate about euthanasia coming up in the UK later this year. And I am still very committed to this idea of marshalling arguments, of finding persuasive arguments in the public square to argue not on the basis that the Bible says that killing is wrong, but rather to say, look, here is this. these are the persuasive reasons as to why... Uh, legalizing mercy killing is not in the best interests of vulnerable people so uh, I still believe in that vision but I I think I have learned that it that it it seems to be often it just doesn't seem to be as persuasive or to engage as one might expect what strikes me when I look back at this is is it seems that Stott was very influenced by this very enlightenment view of rationality and of of the kind of the the human beings are fundamentally rational creatures it's a very modern view and i mean that not in a sense of contemporary but i mean like of modernity and and that maybe is of its moment in the that it was born in the 50s and 60s idea that you know there's this public square where we all roughly agree the basic parameters and then the christian is there and the non-christian is there and they bring their best arguments and there is this clash of ideas and out of this respectful dialogue like truth can emerge and I look at society today, which, you know, some people talk about as being postmodern. And the, the idea that there's a single objective truth, which is derived from a, a well, like a respectful dialogue in the public square, is not central, is not really how people work. And when Christians say, you know, the way the way we will we will build the church is by being really good at apologetics and by delivering outstanding 10 minute talks about the reliability of the New Testament biblical documents, I look at my non-Christian friends and I say, that's not going to persuade any of them. They're not even really looking to be persuaded. Yeah, I, you've elided two different things there, Tim, to be honest. Um, and, I, and they're not the same at all. Um, the first is about the role of rational arguments in the public square. And uh, you're right, I think, that the effect of postmodernism and many other factors in in our culture recently has eroded that concept of, of, of rational, respectful debate. But I, I certainly would think it would be quite wrong to say, therefore, there is no place in it. I mean, the whole idea of a parliament and parliament goes back way, way before the Enlightenment. 
Uh, the whole idea of a parliament is it's a, it's a safe place where people, instead of killing one another and, and exhorting, resorting to violence, actually discuss and debate and use rational and, and reasoned argumentation. And uh, I think the public still want that. What they complain about about Parliament is not that there's careful and thoughtful, reasonable debate going on. They care about the fact it's Yabu sucks party politics. Uh, so I, I think... And so I think you're right that Stott certainly um, was building on liberal and post-enlightenment ideas of what a democracy is um, and arguing that in a democracy Christians have the right to to give reasoned arguments and that surely is correct and I think it's an em an, em an emphasis which is I think is, is sadly lacking so you know I've heard many Christians including Christian preachers and teachers say well look we're a tiny minority so we can't impose our views so there's nothing we can do you know which is a complete non sequitur which is what why Stott said yes we're a tiny minority but tiny minorities can have uh, enormous effects um, so in a democratic society and um, you know, to, but only if the other side are prepared to listen to you, if they actually grant you the space to make your case. Correct. And that might have been true in the 60s, but are Christians granted the space to make their case, given it listened to fairly and respectfully today in the way that Stottian dialogue requires? Well, if they're not, democracy is dead and, you know, totalitarianism will triumph. And it may be, you know, in the light of history, you're right that what we're looking at is the decaying days of democracy when it was when people concluded oh it was one of those nice enlightenment ideas and it just doesn't work and and power brute power as in Myanmar whoever controls the guns uh, is is rules the roost I don't think that's right and I don't think and this is where I would also want to push back because as I said theologically Stott's argument was not based on the Enlightenment, it was based on common grace, which is a reform, a reformation principle, and which goes all the way back to the early fathers in which you find in the Bible. So it, it um, I, I think, yes, our, our common, the, the common good arguments on which democratic society is, is often based are under threat but the creation remains the same in other words my opponent is still a human being and human beings are created to have reasons for their you know we are whether we like it or not we are not um irrational uh we every human being wants to have reasons for how they act and therefore rationality is the way that God has made us and, and appealing to our common humanity and my desire I want to treat you as a human being but I'm asking that you treat me as a human being and, and that that is the basis on which we can have a dialogue I don't think that's dead and I think therefore Christians should not retire from the public square uh, instead we should redouble our efforts to, uh, to present a, a thoughtful reasoned uh, argument and so, you see, in your previous comment, Tim, you, you were implying that that was the same as apologetic arguments for God's existence. But that, I, I regard those as, as two quite different things. I think the modern trend to apologetics is open to the criticism that you make, and that is most people are not interested in those questions. But if you ask the questions which Stott was asking, what do we do about violence? What do we do about unemployment? What do we do about... Um, legal reform actually most people are interested in those things because they directly touch my life and so my experience is when I when I engage in the public arena in these with these kind of issues I don't get people saying oh that's totally irrelevant I got people saying gosh this is really important but I don't agree with you uh, but I, so so I, I would I want to draw that distinction between what is often called apologetics and what this engagement in the public square, in the issues that really matter.
do you, I mean, you mentioned this briefly, but do you, you know, if you, if someone was being totally blunt, and this is obviously not all on John Stott's shoulders at all, but he, he, he spent decades trying to encourage Christians to do what you've described, and it sounds wonderful and I'm all bought in, but I look at the state of the church in 2021 in Britain and the state of the country, and I look at the state of the church and the country in 1960, I don't see any signs of genuine success. If anything, it's gone backwards. It, does that give you any pause to say, do you know what, we've we've had a stab at this Stottian engagement and double listening and, and salt, being salt and light and incarnational mission for 60 years and it's made, you know, not much difference to the general decline that was already well underway at the time that he was, he was preaching and teaching? Yeah, well, I mean... It it would be possible to be discouraged and and but I'm actually reminded of um, a quote from a quite well known quote from G K Chesterton who said the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and left untried. And I think you could say the same about the Stottian vision of genuine respectful dialogue listening engagement i don't think that it is that everyone's tried this and said it doesn't work i honestly think that most people have not tried it it's it it's too difficult it's too costly it's seen as dangerous and and sociologically you know in 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 dangerous and threatening times what hand, what tends to happen people retreat to into their bunkers into their safe certainties because it's all too threatening and dangerous out there and sociologically we see across the world a sort of rise in fundamentalist ideas including scientism scientific fundamentalism and i see the same process within the christian church there's a sort of retreat into the holy huddle into the christian bubble a retreat into clericalism that the most important things that are happening are within the four walls of the church and within the organization the establishment the established church and out there in in the public square it, it's just too dangerous too complicated too confusing um and um it's that kind of retreat i think um which i see that's an overstatement because one can't make those kind of sweeping generalizations about so many different things that are going on um you know because i would also point to the rise of, of christian involvement in in things like food banks and uh social involvement and adoption agencies and and, and lots of other areas where which are precisely the kind of engagement in modern society so it's a complex picture but I, I do think there is a wing of the conservative evangelical uh, wing of the church, which is where Stott had his roots, which has gone back to a kind of reductionist and, and view of, of the world and, and, a, and a clericalism. Hmm. And how would you use kind of Stott's teaching and legacy to challenge that in particular? Are there particular ideas that need renewing and and dusting off and being and being taught again in you know theological colleges or or from church pulpits how do we how do we bring the church away from some of those dead ends that you're talking about well i do think this idea of lay ministry and of the centrality of lay ministry so called i mean i think we probably need to find another word um but um i i that was what was so refreshing about Stott was that he empowered us instead of the implication yes you're all the sort of second-rate Christians and if you're really serious about Jesus you'll you'll get employed by a church what Stott's influence was suddenly wow you know I could be serving Christ as a Christian artist and as as a as a politician and as a as a nature conservationist and this would be just as much service for Christ as would be preaching the Bible that that view which i totally believe was very empowering um but i suspect it sounds it's 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 been largely lost um in in the increasing professionalism of of the church and 
I've had a whole number of um, medical students and junior doctors implying to me, you know, thinking about giving up medicine and, and becoming a preacher because they say, you know, I really want to serve God and, and uh, surely the way, the best way to serve God is to become a preacher. to touch on before we draw this to a close is you know we've just spent the last 30 odd 40 minutes uh, extolling the praises of and, and spending a lot of time talking about one man John Stott and I think it's impossible not to note that this centenary falls at a time when the evangelical church particularly here in the UK is has been reeling from a lot of uh, other pr- equally or not quite but very prominent figures being exposed as as abusers, as charlatans, as, as uh, lacking integrity in their personal lives. Do you think there is, does that give you any hesitation in kind of some of the hagiography of people like Stott? You know, when you think back to the, the, the Fletcher, the Smythe, the Zacharias scandals of recent times, should, should we be more hesitant about, about calling people's attention to examples of godly living and teaching like Stott? Yeah, it's a very important and uh, interesting question. And of course, in the context of, you know, these new revelations, uh, and I'm currently trying to write a book about transforming friendship, including my friendship with Stott, inevitably I've gone back in, in some detail uh, in my own memory about my relationship with Stott and also asking other people about, you know, is it possible that he was being manipulative and coercive uh, and some in some way abusive? Um, and I'm glad to say, you know, the honest truth is both from myself and from others, you know, many people who I've talked to who are close friends, that that I can't think of a single incident where I felt he was abusing or manipulating his position. I mean, it would have been very easy for him to do so. I mean, we all held him in enormous respect and regard. And, you know, if he'd wished to coerce us or manipulate us, uh, we would have... Um, you know, been very vulnerable to that. But but in fact, it was almost like he bent over backwards not to do it. And when we asked him sometimes for advice, when I asked him for advice, he would sometimes say something like, well, I really don't feel that it's for me to tell you what to do, dear brother. Um, you know, you must make up your own mind. And, and so he almost bent over backwards not to be overly coercive. Um, but I, I do think, I mean, I do think hagiography is bad. And I do think there is a sort of fallen tendency amongst us all to put certain people on a pedestal and to say, well, look, you know, I realise I'm no use and I realise lots of these other... But this person, this person is absolutely wonderful. And and I think that's not a healthy um, attitude. And it was one that Stott himself was always at great pains to try and destroy that, often by telling stories against himself and by and by speaking against the kind of adulation which he sometimes got and which other people got. So I, I do think we should resist that desire to put people on pedestals, to treat them as somehow special. But on the other hand, I do think we all need role models. We need to see people who are further on on the journey to Christ than we are. We need to be able to look at people and say, that is, you know, if I turned out, a bit like that that would be a wonderful thing um and i just wish i could learn more from that person about what they know about the lord jesus and certainly the effect of start on on me and on many other people was just to make you hungry for what he had i mean every time i went away from spending time with him i knew that i couldn't be like him you know it was obvious he was in a different league and yet i found myself praying lord if i could just have a tiny little touch of of something about his life something about his his knowledge of Jesus and his desire to serve Jesus and how you could see the character of Jesus in his life if I could have a little touch of that that would, that would be wonderful so I think we do need people to that we can that are inspiring I mean you know in the apost- in the epistles Paul says copy me as I copy Christ so he was you know 
I, I don't feel that we should just say, well, you can't trust anybody. We're all fallen and we're all sinners, so don't don't trust anybody. That 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 can't be the right way forward. It all makes a lot of sense, but I have to be honest. When, I, like, I think for me and a lot of other people in the church, I f- I feel so bruised by some of these scandals and so kind of numb and weary of like you know it's almost a case of who is it going to be next you know who is it next who's going to break our hearts and be and be be turn out to not be who they thought who we thought they were that i think the instinct is is to stop looking and stop treating anyone as though they were had some some kind of model to to represent christ to us because it's just it's too risky it's too risky to spend a podcast talking about John Stott because what if next year it emerges? <laughs> turns out John Stott wasn't who we thought he was. And is it, is it, are we just, is that, is it, do I need to resist that temptation? Is that, is that the wrong like lesson to learn from these ever increasing list of, of fallen, fallen heroes? Well, I mean, in a nutshell, yes, I think that is. I mean, I think, I think, if you really enter into that degree of cynicism and mistrust, then the evil one has has won. Um, you know, the hermeneutic of suspicion, which is so corrosive, is not is not a godly thing. Uh, the, this idea that you mistrust everybody, you mistrust, you never take anything as on on face value. You're always assuming there's some hidden, coercive, abusive, manipulative. Um, I I I think if we give way to that, then we we've allowed evil to sort of corrode the most basic trust. You know, because all human relationships are based on on trust. I mean, you trust your wife. I trust my wife. She trusts you. If if she was spending the whole time thinking, I bet Tim isn't really what he's saying. I bet he really isn't honest. I bet he's really got a double life. You know, it would not it would not be possible to be remain married. So all relationships are based on trust. It isn't blind trust, of course, you know, but but I I think our default position is is to be is to say that if people are revealing the fruits of the spirit in their life, you know, that's that's the test. It's about character. It's about behavior. It's not about giftedness. So we should be looking for role models from people whose character, who display in their lives Christ-like characteristics and the fruit of the Spirit. And the interesting thing that comes out of these scandals is that this would be true, I'm afraid, about Jonathan Fletcher and John Smythe and Ravi Zacharias, that there were lots of people were deeply concerned at the time but suppressed their... Uh, concerns. So th- there were, I, there, there was evidence of deep, deep character flaws. There was evidence of things that were just completely in cons- uh, out of um, consonance you know, of the split between the external persona and the internal life. And and so obviously we need to be looking for those things. And when we see those things, when we see something which is glaringly inconsistent then I think we have to call it out. Or at least if we're not going to call it out, we have to make assumptions that that is a person not to be trusted. Hmm. Um, so I think we, what it teaches us is is not to become deeply suspicious and cynical. It does teach us to look at character first and the fruit of the spirit and the way that people behave in private uh, more than um, the external, the persona, the image. And that actually ties in with with something that you've drawn out of of Stott's kind of model of engaging with the secular world is that it's it was absolutely it was partly a, it was partly about being prepared to master your arguments and speak persuasively for Christ in the public square to connect the unchanging gospel with the contemporary world. But it was also, as you talked about in that in about releasing lay people, it was about it was more than just words. It was about deeds too. And it was about living authentically and living attractively. And how, you know, for your context, it was about doctoring in a way that was Christ-like as well as speaking in a way that was Christ-like. So there isn't a disconnect. Um, and so much I think of what people of what contemporary secular 
Western culture hates about Christianity is the stench of hypocrisy. And these exactly. scandals underline that. And what we therefore have to aim for is to, ha is to have complete consonance between the words that we say and how we say that God is and what he thinks about the stuff, but also how we live in the ordinary everyday lives. No, that's exactly right. And that's why my own conviction is, as we move into the 21st century and on, on into it, that actually increasingly the reputation and spread of Christianity is going to depend on lay people, there's that word again, you know, the non-ordained, the non-professional, the non-employed, professionally employed Christians. It's that incarnation mission partly because there is such mistrust about and, and and as you say the stench of hypocrisy which of course is much more likely to happen to the to the clerics than it is to the people working you know the ordinary joes working on the on the shop floor and partly because when words become so decayed and distorted that they start to be meaningless we still have actions yes talking about jesus may become increasingly difficult but I can still live like Jesus and the more we live like Jesus the more other people will say actually I want to have something like that because that's what happened in the early church that was why the church grew it grew because ordinary people were showing the character of Christ um, as they did their ordinary jobs well that feels like a good place to draw this conversation to a close Thanks very much, John. It's been fascinating digging into the life and legacy of John Stott and toying with some of those ideas. Um, I look forward to uh, speaking to you again soon. Thanks very much. It's been great. That's it for this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends or on social media. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all other major podcast apps. As always, don't forget to check out John's website, which has plenty more resources to read, listen to, and watch on lots of the things that we've talked about in the podcast and much more besides. You can find it at johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T.com. And if for some reason you'd even like to follow me online, I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter, and you can find some of my journalism at tswyatt.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com, or just send me a tweet. We're always keen to hear from listeners, especially if you have a question to ask, a topic you'd like us to explore, or a news development to respond to. The music in the show is, as always, by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time.